Section 26 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rosato Johnson, and John Rudd. Triumphs of Hildebrand, The Turning Point of the Middle Ages. Henry the Fourth begs for mercy at Canossa, A.D. ten seventy three to ten eighty five. Arthur R. Pennington, Arto de Montour. If during the pontificate of Innocent the Third, eleven ninety eight through twelve sixteen, the papal power attained its greatest height, yet under one of his predecessors, the chair of Saint Peter became a throne of almost absolute supremacy. This mighty pontiff, Gregory the Seventh, whose real name, Hildebrand, indicates his German descent, was born the son of a carpenter in Tuscany, about 1020. He became a monk of the Benedictine order, and was educated at the Abbey of Cluny in France. In 1044 he went to Rome, called by a papal election, and there saw abuses which from that moment he fixed his mind upon striving to abolish. In 1048 he was again in Rome, and soon rose to the rank of cardinal. For many years Hildebrand was the real director of papal policy, and long before his election as pope in 1073, he worked to accomplish the reforms that distinguish his pontificate, which continued till his death in 1085. As part of the Holy Roman Empire, Italy held a dual relation to the emperor and the pope. Between the Roman pontiffs and the secular heads of the empire, the struggle for supremacy had been long and often bitter. At the time of Hildebrand's active appearance, the papacy was in a state of degradation which demoralized the church itself. Long before his elevation to the papal chair, Hildebrand's efforts had met with much success, and the power of the Holy See was gradually increased. Independently of the emperor, whose will had hitherto governed the papal elections, in 1058, chiefly through the influence of Hildebrand, Pope Nicholas II was chosen by a new method, and from that time the choice of popes has been made by the Sacred College of Cardinals. Hildebrand reluctantly accepted the office of pope, but having entered upon the task which he knew to be so formidable, he pursued it with such energy, courage, and success as to make his pontificate one of the most memorable in the annals of the church of his greatest contests within the ecclesiastical jurisdiction over the celibacy of the clergy and simony as well as those of the imperial power represented by henry the fourth the war of investitures the following account will be found to present the essential features with a clearness and comprehensiveness which are seldom seen in the relation of matter so complex and in a narrative so concise. The differing viewpoints are also instructive, and presented by Pennington of the Church of England and Artaud, the standard Roman Catholic authority. Arthur R. Pennington The time had come when Hildebrand was to receive the reward of the important services which he had rendered to the Holy See. He had been ruling a spirit under five popes, Leo, Victor, Stephen, Nicholas, 
and Alexander, four of whom were indebted to him for their election. But now he must himself be raised to the papal throne. The clergy were assembled in the Lateran church to celebrate the obsequies of Alexander. Hildebrand, as archdeacon, was performing the service. Suddenly, in the midst of the requiem for the departed, a shout was heard, which seemed to come as if by inspiration from the assembled multitude. Hildebrand is pope. St. Peter chooses the archdeacon Hildebrand. From the funeral procession, Hildebrand flew to the pulpit and with impassioned gestures seemed to be imploring silence. The storm, however, did not cease till one of the cardinals, in the name of the sacred college, declared that they had unanimously elected him whom the people had chosen. Arrayed in scarlet robes, crowned with the papal tiara, Gregory the Seventh ascended the chair of St. Peter. The Pope very soon made known the course which he should pursue. He issued a prohibition against the marriage of the clergy, and in a council at Rome abolished the right of investiture. He was determined to redress the wrongs of society. He had seen oppression laying waste the fairest provinces of Europe. He had seen many princes, goaded on by the revengeful passions of their nature, flinging wide their standard to the winds and dipping their hands in the blood of those who, if Christianity be not a fable, were their very brothers. A magnificent vision rose up before him. He would rule the world by religion. He would be the Caesar of the spiritual monarchy. He and a council of prelates annually assembled at Rome would constitute a tribunal from whose judgment there should be no appeal empowered to hold the supreme meditation in matters relating to the interests of the body politic, to settle contested successions to kingdoms, and to compel men to seize from their dissensions. The civil power was to pledge itself to be prompt in the execution of their decrees against those who despised their authority. But if the decisions of those judges were to carry weight, they must be men of unblemished integrity. The purity of their ermine must be altogether unsullied. The sale of the highest spiritual offices by the prince, who had deprived the clergy and people of their right to elect them, which had stained the hands of the church and undermined its power, must be altogether forbidden. Elections must be free. The custom of investiture by sovereigns with ring and crozier, which had rendered the hierarchy and clergy the creatures of their will, must be forbidden. The clergy must possess an absolute exemption from the criminal justice of the state. They must recognize but one ruler, the Pope, who disposed of them indirectly through the bishops, or directly in cases of exemption, and used them as tools for the execution of his behests. In fact, they were to constitute a vast army, exclusively devoted to the service of an ecclesiastical monarch. They must be unconnected by marriage with the world around them, that they might be bound more closely to one another and to their head, that they might be saved from the temptation of restless projects for the advancement of their families, which have caused so much scandal in the world, and that they might give an exalted idea of their sanctity, inasmuch as in order that they might give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, they would forego that connubial bliss portion of those 
the happiest of their kind whom gentler stars unite and in one fate their hearts their fortunes and their beings blend the marriage of the clergy was everywhere more or less repugnant to the general feeling of christendom the rise and progress of asceticism in the church had their source in human nature and its growth was quickened by a reaction from the immorality of paganism the general effect on the position of the clergy was to compel them to keep progress with the prevailing movement men consecrated to the service of jehovah must rise superior to the common herd of their fellow creatures by a decree of pope Sericius, at the end of the fourth century marriage was interdicted to all priests and deacons this decree was however very imperfectly observed during the following centuries the general feeling was however at this time very strongly against the married clergy but throughout the spiritual realm of hildebrand in italy from calabria to the alps the clergy had risen up in rebellion against him and the popes his predecessors when they attempted to coerce them into celibacy we believe that this opposition much more than the strife as to investitures was the cause of the strong feeling almost unprecedented which existed against gregory the seventh we must now show that gregory enforced his views as to investitures this part of our subject is important because it gave occasion for the assertion that the pope could depose the holy roman emperor and the king of italy if he should find him morally or physically disqualified for fulfilling the condition on which his appointment depended that he should defend him from his enemies henry the fourth at the beginning of his reign only ten years of age was at this time emperor one day he was standing by the rhine a galley with silken streamers appeared into which he was invited to enter after he had been gliding for some time down the stream he found that he was a prisoner the archbishops of milan and Köln, with other powerful lords having consigned him to a degrading captivity administered in his name the government of the empire by affording him every means of vicious indulgence they were only too successful in corrupting a noble and generous nature very soon he was guilty of crimes and plunged into excesses which seemed to cry aloud for vengeance the pope saw that the time had come for the execution of his designs henry had been guilty of the grossest simony the spiritual dignities had been openly sold to the highest bidder he saw also that while the clergy took the oath of fealty to the monarch and were invested by him with the ring and grotzier he could not establish the superiority of the spiritual to the temporal jurisdiction he therefore summoned a council at the lateran ten seventy five which issued a decree against lay investitures the pope having thus declared war against the emperor proceeded to fill up certain vacant bishoprics and to suspend bishops both in germany and italy who had been guilty of simony he also cited henry before him to answer for his simony crimes and excesses the citation is alleged to have given occasion for an attempted crime supposed to have been sanctioned by henry which may show us that while the pope was asserting a right to rule over the nations he could not rule in his own city on christmas eve ten seventy five the city of rome was visited with a violent tempest darkness brooded over the land the inhabitants thought that the day of judgment was at hand in the midst of this war of the elements 
two processions were seen advancing towards the church of santa maria maggiore at the head of one of them was hildebrand leading his priests to worship at a shrine at the head of the other was sentius a roman noble in one of the pauses in the roar of the tempest when the pope was heard blessing his flock the arm of sentius grasped his person and the sword of a ruffian inflicted a wound on his forehead bound with cords the pope was removed to a mansion in the city from which he was the next day to be removed to exile or to death a sword was aimed at the pontiff's bosom when the cries of a fierce multitude threatening to burn down the house arrested the arm of the assassin an arrow discharged from below reached and slew the latter Cencius fell at the pope's feet a suppliant for pardon and for life the pontiff immediately pardoned him then amid the acclamations of the roman people gregory proceeded to complete the interrupted solemnities at santa maria maggiore the war between henry and the pope continued henry summoned a synod at worms in january 1076 which decreed the deposition of the pope the envoy charged to convey this sentence appeared in the council chamber of the lateran in february before an assembly consisting of the mightiest in the land whom the pope had summoned to sit in judgment on henry with flashing eyes and in a voice of thunder he directed the pope to descend from the chair of saint peter cries of indignation rang through the hall and a hundred swords were seen leaping from their scabbards to inflict vengeance on the daring intruder the pope with difficulty stilled the angry tumult then rising with calm dignity amid the breathless silence of the assembled multitude he uttered that dread anathema which shuts paradise and opens hell and absolved the subjects of henry from their allegiance the inhabitants of europe were struck dumb with amazement when they witnessed this exercise of papal prerogative they thought that the powerful arm of henry would have been raised to smite down the audacious hildebrand the pope however well knew that henry had by his excesses alienated from himself the affections of his subjects the sentence gave a pretext to many of his nobility to withdraw from their allegiance awed by spiritual terrors his attendants fell away from him as if he had been smitten by a leprosy an assembly was now summoned at Tribur, in obedience to a requisition from the pope at which it was decreed that if the emperor continued excommunicated on the twenty-third of february ten seventy seven his crown should be given to another the theory of the holy roman empire had thus become a practical reality the vassal of otho had reduced the successor of otho to vassalage a great pope had wrung from the superstition and reverence of mankind a spiritual empire which it was hoped would extend its sway to earth's remotest boundaries artaud de montour gregory made it invariable rule to act at the outset with gentleness no one says he reaches the highest rank at a single spring great edifices rise gradually certain of his strength he chose to employ conciliation he especially sought to convince henry but the excesses in which that prince wallowed were so abominable that his subjects in all parts and especially the great 
revolted against him. In 1076, Gregory assembled a council, which pronounced the excommunication of the king, with all the terrible consequences attended upon it. History shows several emperors of the East excommunicated by preceding popes, Arcadius by Innocent I, Anastasius by St. Symmachus, and Leo the Isaurian by Gregory II and Gregory III. The decree of the same council set forth that the throne vacated by Henry was adjudged to Rudolf, Duke of Swabia, already created king of Germany by the electors of the empire. Before the election of Rudolf, Gregory had declared that he would repair to Germany. King Henry, on his part, promised to come into Italy. The Pope left Rome, with an escort furnished by the Countess of Tuscany, daughter of Bonifaci, Marquis of Tuscany. The march of Gregory was a triumph. Amidst that escort, he reached Vercelli. It was feared by some that Henry would make his appearance at the head of an army, but he had not that intention. The Pope, nevertheless, deemed it best to retire into the fortress of Canossa, belonging to Countess Matilda, in order that he might be secure from all violence. Henry had spent nearly two months at Spires, in a profound and melancholy solitude. The weight of the excommunication oppressed him with a thousand griefs. Weary of that state of uncertainty, and still as ever tricky and hypocritical, he conceived the idea of winning over the Pope by an apparent piety, and of satisfying his requirements by a brief humiliation. Moreover, the decree of excommunication declared that it should be withdrawn if the king appeared before the Pope within a year from the date of the decree. The winter was severe. After running a thousand dangers, the king and his queen arrived at Turin and proceeded to Placentia. Thence the prince announced that he would proceed to Canossa by way of Reggio. The Countess Matilda met him with Hugo, Bishop of Cluny. She wished to restore harmony between the Pope and the King. Gregory seemed to desire that Henry should return to Augsburg to be judged by the Diet. The envoys of the King, at Canossa, replied, Henry does not fear being judged. He knows that the Pope will protect innocence and justice. But the anniversary of the excommunication is at hand, and if the excommunication be not removed, the king, according to the laws of the land, will lose his right to the crown. The prince humbly requests the Holy Father to raise the interdict and to restore him to the communion of the church. He is ready to give every satisfaction that the pope shall require, to present himself at such place and at such time as the pope shall order, to meet his accusers and to commit himself entirely to the decision of the head of the church. Henry, says Voigt, having received permission to advance, was not long on the way. The fortress had triple enclosures. Henry was conducted into the second. His retinue remained outside the first. He had laid aside the insignia of royalty. Nothing announced his rank. All day long, Henry, bareheaded, clad in penitential garb, and fasting from morning till night, awaited the sentence of the sovereign pontiff. He thus waited during a second and a third day. During the intervening time, he had not ceased to negotiate. On the morrow, Matilda interceded with the Pope on behalf of Henry, and the conditions of the treaty were settled. The prince promised to give satisfaction to the complaints made against him by his subjects, and he took an oath 
in which his sureties joined when the oaths were taken the pontiff gave the king the benediction and the apostolic peace and celebrated mass after the consecration of the host the pope called henry and all present and still holding the host in his hand said to the king we have received letters from you and those of your party in which we are accused of having usurped the holy see by simony and of having both before and since our episcopacy committed crimes which according to the canons exclude us from holy orders although we could justify ourselves by the testimony of those who have known our manner of life from our childhood and who were the authors of our promotion to the episcopacy nevertheless to do away with all kinds of scandal we will appeal to the judgment not of men but of god let the body of our lord jesus christ that we are about to take be this day a proof of our innocence we pray the almighty to dispel all suspicion if we are innocent and to cause us suddenly to die if we are guilty then turning towards the king gregory again spoke dear son do also as you have seen us do the german princes have daily accused you to us of a great number of crimes for which those nobles maintain that you ought to be interdicted during your whole life not only from royalty and all public function but also from all ecclesiastical communion and from all commerce of civil life they urgently demand that you be judged and you know how uncertain are all human judgments do then as we advise and if you feel that you are innocent deliver the church from this scandal and yourself from this embarrassment take this other portion of the host that this proof of your innocence may close the lips of your enemies and engage us to be your most ardent defender to reconcile you with the nobles and forever to terminate the civil war this address astonished the king going apart with his confidence he tremblingly consulted as to what he could do to avoid so terrible a test at length having somewhat recovered his calmness he said to the pope that as those nobles who remained faithful were for the most part absent as well as those who accused him the latter would give little faith to what he might do in his own justification unless it were done in their presence for that reason he asked that the test should be postponed to the day of the sitting of the general diet and the pope consented when the pope had finished mass he invited the king to dinner treated him with much attention and dismissed him in peace to his own people who had remained outside the castle henry on his return to his nobles was not well received henry as void chose soon became alarmed at their disapprobation which originated only in a feeling of wounded complicity and ambitious views which could not hope for success after the victory gained by gregory henry hearing himself accused of weakness thought to deliver himself from so much annoyance by a bold perjury and he endeavored to draw gregory and matilda into a snare warned by faithful friends they did not visit the king as had been agreed and that new wrong determined gregory to suspend his departure for the diet of augsburg not one not even the pious matilda now dared to speak of a reconciliation henry held a brescia in ten eighty a pseudo-council of the bishops devoted to him and there he caused gibert 
archbishop of Ravenna, and avowed enemy of Gregory to be elected as pope. And he deposed Gregory, although he was recognized as legitimate pope by the whole Catholic world, with the exception of the bishops in revolt, under the direction of Henry. On learning this, Gregory celebrated at Rome, in the year 1080, a regular council, in which he again excommunicated Henry, and especially the anti-pope, whom he would never absolve. Arthur Pennington The war continued. Henry's rival for the empire, Rudolf of Swabia, was supported by many German partisans, especially by the Saxons. He was defeated with great loss at Fladenheim. The skill and courage of the Saxon commander, however, turned a defeat into victory. Emboldened by this victory, Gregory excommunicated Henry, and gave granted and conceded that Rudolf might rule the Italian and German empires. With the sanction of thirty bishops, an anti-pope, Guibert, was elected at Brixen. The war raged with undiminished violence. The Saxons, the only power in alliance with the Romans, gained a victory over Henry in Germany at the very same time when Matilda's forces fled before his army in the Mantuan territory. Matilda had lately granted all her hereditary states to Gregory, and his successors, forever. Before the summer of the year 1080, the citizens of Rome saw the forces of Henry in the Campania. The siege of Rome continued for three years. The capture of the city was imminent, when the forces of Robert Giscard, the Norman, came to the rescue of the Pope. Nicholas II had bestowed on Robert Griscard the investiture of the duchies of Apulia and Calabria, Sicily also, the conquest of which his brother Richard was meditating, being prospectively added to Robert's dominions. The oath taken by Robert Griscard on this occasion bound him to be the devoted defender of the pontificate. He now became a friend indeed, a hasty retreat saved the forces of Henry from the impending danger. The Pope returned in triumph to the Lateran, but within a few hours he heard from the streets the clash of arms and the loud shouts of the combatants. A fierce contest was raging between the soldiers of Robert and the citizens who espoused the cause of Henry. A conflagration was kindled, which at length destroyed three-fourths of the city. Gregory, perhaps conscience-stricken when he thought of the wars he had kindled, sought in the castle of Salerno from the Normans the security which he could no longer expect among his own subjects. He soon found that the hand of death was upon him. He summoned round his bed the bishops and cardinals who had accompanied him in his flight from Rome. He maintained the truth of the principles for which he had always contended. He forgave and blessed his enemies with the exception of the antipope and the emperor. He had received the transubstantiated elements. The final unction had been given to him. He then prepared himself to die. Anxious to catch the last words from that tongue, to the utterances of which they had always listened with intense delight, his followers were bending over him, when, collecting his powers for one last effort, he said, in an indignant tone. I have loved righteousness and hated iniquity, and therefore I die in exile. End of section 26